It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each year, the Aspen Institute holds its annual Aspen Ideas Festival. Hundreds of inspired and provocative speakers and thousands of participants descend on the Institute's 40-acre campus, tucked near towering mountain peaks in Aspen, Colorado. We want you to be part of the festival, so we're featuring fascinating conversations with festival speakers throughout the event. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show produced by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The Aspen Ideas Festival is jam-packed with on-stage discussions touching on topics such as climate change, U.S. and world politics, psychology, technology, and health. For our series, we've asked a group of journalists to step off the stage and get behind the mic. These podcast takeover hosts handpicked festival speakers for discussions on a myriad of topics. Our next takeover host is Pete Dominic. He's the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Sirius XM's Insight Channel. Dominic created the channel and launched it in 2015. The channel also airs our show, Aspen Ideas To Go. Here's Dominic's takeover. Welcome to the Aspen Ideas To Go podcast. My name is Pete Dominic, and I'm really excited to be sitting down about to interview the two friends of mine that I've gotten to know pretty well, who are both really brilliant, uh, they're both writers, and they both have a lot to say, so we're very excited. Let's get right to it. Joining me on my left, he's a writer, he's an attorney, he's a contributor to the New York Times op-ed. That's where I discovered him. In the New York Times, Wajahat Ali is here. And to my right, I'm sitting next to the great comedian and writer Trayvon Free, who's worked on The Daily Show with both Jon Stewart uh, and Trevor Noah, as well as uh, Sam B's show. And we're really excited to have both of them here at the Aspen Ideas To Go podcast. Guys, thanks very much for joining me. Wajahat, uh, how's it going out here in Aspen? What, is this your first time? This is my second time. First right. time at Aspen Idea Festival. That means they like me. I'm the uh, bearded, circumcised unicorn of Aspen. Uh, <laughs> one of the ten people of color who's still alive after, uh, <laughs> after three days. Uh, but it's good, man. They really like me. It's, it's interesting because I feel like they want to touch me. But they, 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 they want permission, and I've let, I've let like 17 people rub me so far. <laughs> Trayvon, how many people have uh, reached out just to uh, feel what your skin feels like and I, your hair? I think they got all their feels in last year when I was here. <laughs> year, so that was a good experience. They got to know me. Now I'm like in, so they, like, like they don't need to like feel me out. Can I ask what's the difference? Because like, I'm still an outsider. Like I'm desperately trying to come in next year. Like, <laughs> I, like seriously, like, like if, they have, if, they, if they have to like me like strangle another minority to make it, like I'll do it. Like what's the in? Like how no, do you make it No, you're actually supposed in? to strangle a white person. Yeah, yeah. No, that's oh, what that's you do. True. Yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> There's so many things that we can talk about uh, and, and let's, let's get right to it because uh, I don't know if you know, but the President of the United States is, is a cartoon villain and a, and a reality <laughs> show television host and uh, there's so much to talk about. I just want to go back to election night. But yeah. Jahat, where were you and what? Ha and how did you feel? I was at Javits Center, my friend, where everyone expecting the glass ceiling to break. I was covering the elections for Huffington Post Live. And around 9.30, you saw a mass exodus downstairs for alcohol. And then I went back, and this is true, I went back to the Huffington Post studios in New York, and I'm like the old fart there. Right? They're all millennials. And what was really sad for me is there were a lot of women there, young women, mm. who were crying. Mm. And I had to console them as the elder statesman. And I had to say, listen, I'm a bit older, I'm a bit more gray, but for us, we're the 9-11 generation, and we saw two terms of Bush. Then I went, and it will, it'll get better, but it'll be, a, it'll be a lot of work. And then I went to Times Square, where I was the only person of color and the only, uh, literally the only journalist covering the reaction. 
And I was asking people their thoughts. And the funniest thing was there was like a, a somber sadness all over New York. And there was a person of color, a Dominican who was raving and said, yes, I voted for Trump. I bet on him. And he won. He's going to make America great again. And I had spent 20 minutes talking to this person of color who voluntarily voted for Trump, a man who engineered his entire campaign on white nationalism. And I'm like, you do realize that you look Muslim and that <laughs> bigots don't have nuance. And he's like, oh, good point. Um, and since then, it's been a, you know, an active look uh, in all seriousness. Just think about this. Everyone's talking about resistance, resistance, resistance. Simply being a person of color is an act of resistance mm -hmm. in America. Getting up, breathing the Aspen air, living with dignity, with your held high, uh, head held high, speaking articulately uh, or eloquently, as I'm not doing right now, um, that is seen as an act of resistance. The act of being is an act of resistance in 2017 in America. So what does that say about our state of current politics? And now, apparently, uh, Trump went after 51% uh, uh, of the population uh, because he thinks that's a smart way of winning the 2020 elections by going after... Who do you go after today? Uh, oh, uh, Mika Brzezinski. Mika Brzezinski, yeah. yeah. And so now, finally, last thing I'll say is, finally, Republican congressman, last time I checked, like 20 minutes ago, Sass and uh, Graham went after him. And I'm like, okay... Uh, if that's what it takes for you to criticize the president, maybe now you can step up for black people, undocumented, Mexicans, Muslims. Well, that's not like like carried away. <laughs> uh, Trayvon, would, would you, do you agree uh, with what Waz just said about you know, just being a person of color? Sure. Or is that too far? No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, just by virtue of being brown in America, people automatically look at you and can assume for the most part You've had some experience in this country that was negative because of your color the, mm. or the way you looked. And that somehow has colored your experience as an American where you can probably figure out where our politics lie, at least in the social sense of what it means to have a president who is not actively pursuing policies that put your life in danger or putting a racist in charge of the mm. Justice Department like all those kind of things you carry with you every day. Well, what my white ears hear is two victims. <laughs> Whining and complaining. Whining and complaining about. Absolutely. Because, yeah. because of the skin that you are in, it's harder to overcome these obstacles. That, and you say absolutely. Yeah. We're at Aspen, <laughs> man. Check it out. Look, honest, honest conversation. Victimhood all day, baby. I was, I, was talking to, I was talking to the people of color. We all get together. It's the Multicultural Justice Listen League. This is the Trayvon's podcast. Yeah. It's called Victimhood. Yeah, it's called yeah. Victimhood. Whining and Victimhood. <laughs> uh, but honestly, what we're talking about is the following. Like, man, the barrier of entry for us to get into Aspen is near impossible. But once we get in, we're killing it here. Right. Right. And yeah. the only people we are, man. Well, I, I want to defend Aspen, the Aspen Institute, in terms of welcoming diversity. Of you mean the town of Aspen? Just, you mean Aspen, it's just, Colorado? It's just the like, idea of Aspen. There you go. The idea and that yes, Aspen everyone's been lovely. Like everyone, everyone in in, in, in Aspen has been amazing. The, the two years amazing, I've been here, amazing, incredible people. But what the idea of Aspen represents in America is extreme wealth, privilege. Yeah. Uh, whiteness, white, uh, whiteness, and that's not to Skeen. say that's <laughs> snow more white. President it's, Snow, Hunger it's, Games. It's not to say <laughs> that it's not to say that those things are inherently negative, but it speaks to the to the division 
among people and also in the America. Double, and, and so for people like me and Wajahat to get, f- come from where we come from, to be welcomed into that idea is very difficult. It's not lost on us at all. Yes. It, we're very aware that I, I am 100% sure I'm the only person from Compton in Aspen right now. I'm willing to bet money there is no other person who grew up in Compton in the 80s and 90s, who is in Aspen right now. I will take that wager. Well, I want to mention Ice Cube is actually here. Uh, <laughs> oh, God so damn it, Cube. Everywhere. He just wanted to. There can uh, be only one. That. It's the Highlander rules. There can be only <laughs> one. Yeah. So but, Trayvon's but, about to go beat up Ice Cube. Yeah, we got so, so, but that I, but to say, I say that to say that you want more people like us to, to come into these spaces the, the, the Ideas Festival is diverse for that reason. Yeah. It's, it's to flower that idea of diversity and inclusion makes the world a better place. Representation. Representation makes the world a better place. And so by virtue of being here, like he was saying, it's not lost on us at all that, like, this was no easy feat. Right. We had to, like, I've seen so many people die in my, where I grew up from gun violence, from, from fights, all kind of things where... I could have just as easily not been here today. Right. But by virtue of making it out of that town for whatever reasons, however it happened, being this close to someone, being gunned down, and me not taking a stray bullet or any type of anything, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, something had to happen mm-hmm. for this to happen. Wad, you also grew up in California, and you were... Fremontistan. Fremontistan, California. <laughs> and you were a token brown guy, token Muslim, yeah. token... Token everything. Token left-handed guy. Uh, I know you're struggling that uh, But no, listen, it goes back to your point, right? The double standard, you just mentioned it. People of color articulate a challenge and a problem. We're whining. A white guy does it. He's keeping it real. He's just getting stuff off his chest. Right. He's politically incorrect. Well, I'm bald. The sun is on a, on a bald white head. It wreaks havoc. And, and also the white skin. You can relate to that. The, sun, the, is, the sun is racist against no white people. Idea the sun my is struggle. Like you yeah. If you guys had just if you guys had just stayed in Africa, you would have gotten the melanin you needed. If you guys, but you know what? You, you mentioned something really good, right? Because you're the token, and it's not lost on me and Trayvon. And I hope I'm not speaking for you, but I think you'll you'll empathize with this. It is not lost on me in the last two days I've been here that I am quite literally the only somewhat articulate person of color Muslim that many of these, they're not gatekeepers, man. This is the creme de la creme. These are the people who literally built the gates, all right? Right. And literally in a 20-minute conversation I've had with very well-intentioned people, just by simply being me and dropping stuff that me and Trayvon might might talk about like on the playground, people are like, I have never thought of that in my entire life. I know Like what? Is there an example of that that you like? You just yeah. I'll give you one example. Yeah. Someone says, "What do you think of Ayan Hirsi Ali and <laughs> Asra Nomani? Aren't they like the best Muslim reformers?" Yikes! And be honest with me. Tell me how you really feel. And I'm like, the fact that you think that Ayan Hirsi Ali and Asra Nomani, and we could talk about who they are, are representative of three to four million American Muslims and representative of the type of Islam they practice, shows me how disconnected you are from the lived realities of the overwhelming majority of Muslims. Why is, it, why is it so hard for people to understand there are different types of Muslims? There are different types 
of black men? Why is it that we who don't who don't know you, okay? Because okay, for example, I grew up in an all white you know community, um, and there was just very little diversity. So so some of it's natural. You like for, for, all we see is what we see in the media or what we hear right. about. So we automatically lump you in. You guys do that too, probably with certain types of people. Why why are we so ignorant that as mm. a mature educated person you can't imagine that especially with religion that there's any number of interpretations of your religion where does well, that why why does that where does it manifest well from? for one i think minorities understand that there are various types and degrees of different other minorities yeah because we are more likely to be friends with those people and so i i had an experience where i went to uh nebraska last year uh for the Johnny Carson Comedy Festival. Always bragging. Always bragging. Uh, almost every time. Dropping the Nebraska Johnny Carson time, Festival. Every time I interview you know, him, he brings this up. They call it the, they call it the Bonnaroo of Nebraska. Right? <laughs> uh, he's wild. He's wild. Uh, but I was one of four black people in the festival. Mm. And in Norfolk, uh, Nebraska, I never saw a single black person outside of the four of us the entire week I was there and we went like everywhere like we had liaison families who like took us around and showed us around uh, the, the town and there were all these like events and everything and <clears throat> not a single no. other minority everyone was white everyone and so I got to know my like family liaison I got really well he was a, an awesome dude Republican uh, gun lover. He he. I shot my first gun in Nebraska. At oh, really? You never shot a gun he, in Compton? No, never. I was I was dodging him, but mm. the mm. he had a gun range in the back of his uh, house. So I I figured, okay, there's a great time to talk one on one what? with what? someone who does not agree with me sure. on a lot of things. Sure. And so we talked about guns and we talked about politics, and then we had this dinner where it was me. Uh, Dwayne Perkins, another comedian. Great, great comedian. Great comedian. Yeah. And all these white people who we just had a great conversation about how they were conservative. They loved Fox News. Mm -hmm. That was their news. And they supported Trump. And in talking to them, I learned that the way they view us is not because they just think we're a certain way. It's because their only experience with us is through the filter of Fox News. The only News. exposure. And the then, only exposure is what they're telling right. you, us, right. telling you that we are. So, and these people aren't the kind of people who will just get up one day and go to Los Angeles for a week or go to New York for a week and, and experience like a multi, a wide array of people because like one of the things they talked about is like, they, they don't make a lot of money. Like it's not, you can't just pick up. Right. And, and, like, I've been back and forth between New York and L.A. four or five times in the last, like, three months. That's expensive as hell. Right. And the, the, the people who I was hanging out with, they don't have that luxury. Right. So they're only, not only are they not getting experiences from people like me or Wajahat in person and having a connection to, to us so that they can understand, oh, well, the black person they're telling me about on TV, I know other black people I know a wider. Well, don't you of become? People. But don't you both? Uh, you both become. In my in my opinion, I've I've got to know both of you really well, and and you're both one of the good ones. 
<laughs> moderates. <laughs> yeah. He's the uh, tall, moderate, yeah. because safe I, black you're man. You're one of the good ones because yeah. I've gotten to know you. Yeah. But I've so heard that before in my real life, unironically. Well, that's I heard that yesterday <laughs> at Aspen, bro. I heard yeah, so that yesterday explain, at Aspen. But explain where that comes from. I'm not. I'm not racist. I, I just had. I just had dinner with Wajahat Ali. Yeah, I'll tell you exactly <laughs> what it comes from. Uh, lack. I think I just walking by just stopped and looked at me. Did you see that? I did. Lack. He was like, "Wait, what? Is it? Who's not racist?" He thinks this is going to be a real fist fight. He goes, this is amazing. He's speaking my. He's I speaking think, my truth. I think the brown guy is going to blow up. Uh, look, I'll give you an example. I went to the Rust Belt three times after Trump was elected, and each speech it was a university, and they said, "We have never had a Muslim speaker before." In the audience, people came up to me afterwards and said, "Straight up, I'm telling you." I had never met another person of color in Ohio until I was in college. college. I've had that experience. Yeah. Nebraska, I was invited to Nebraska, said we have never had a Muslim speaker on this campus. And so it's now important. Now get him. You know, yeah, get him. Run. And, was <laughs> and like, you will be the last. Yeah. When you see white people running here, it's like, oh, white people in Aspen running. When you see me and Trayvon running, come help us. Uh, but in all seriousness, look, I think Trayvon alluded to this. It's very important for the listeners. We do not believe white people have horns on their head, that they're evil, right. that they're malicious, that they're born with a malignant Absolutely. heart. I know for a fact, and the stats and research reveals, that the overwhelming majority of them have had no, had almost zero meaningful interaction right. with people of color. So, question then goes, why does Pete Dominic, or fake Pete Dominic, think that there's only X amount of Muslims and black people who are violent criminals, and then a few unicorns who are good? And the overwhelming majority of studies show that 65% of Americans say they don't know a Muslim. Even though, wait for it, Muslims came here in the 16th century. 5 to 20% of the Muslims that were here were black Muslims brought here forcibly against their will. So if you think about it... And now they're done coming here, by the way. They're done. <laughs> uh, grandparents know, stepsisters fine. The gates uh, are closed. Yeah. Unless have you have the bona fides. The bona fides. You need a letter. Um... <laughs> come to the Trump Towers if you get in. <laughs> you need a letter. <laughs> uh, you really do. But, you know, think about it. Muslim blood, sweat, labor has fertilized this country's soil for the past 400 years. Yet from 2010 to 2017, the stats show 65% of Americans say they don't know a Muslim. Once you ask them, what do you know about Islam and Muslims? They go, it's mostly negative. Osama. Where'd you get that from? Not just the media, but pop culture narratives. And so my story and the story of 1.7 billion Muslims and 1,400 years of Islamic civilization is a caricature of Osama, Ayatollah, uh, who else? It's, Saddam. It's homeland, basically. It's homeland. Uh, and Trayvon is the guy running away from cops on cops. Right. And so, that's why when you meet us, you're like, holy shit. You can be funny. You, are, uh, you, you can read The New Yorker. Uh, you, read, you eat halal meat. You don't practice Sharia. Yeah, you're not angry. Uh, you, I, you can quip jokes. And when I said that yesterday, two days ago, we were at this friggin', we took a gondola up friggin' 10,000 feet and ate Branzino fish on the top <laughs> of a mountain. And the guy next to me is a guy from the South who's saying totally un-PC stuff. And he said, dropped a lot of stuff. He goes, when I see a, when I see a Muslim woman wearing a hijab, it offends me. Why do I need to see that? And I had two choices. You can either be Daffy Duck or Bugs Bunny. You can either be angry and punch him in the face and call him a racist, but what happens to Daffy Duck at the end of the cartoon? The shotgun always, always. goes off on his face. Yeah. I decided to be Bugs Bunny. I was two steps ahead. I used logic. I was calm. I was friendly. I entertained him, and he could not combat my logic and truth and humor. Next day, I met him at a dinner. He said, man, I told everyone I met this Muslim guy, you, and I'm like, man, you were a good one. Thanks for entertaining my oh, shit. Oh, boy. And, yeah. uh, you know, 
I appreciate you talking to me. All right, now's the time. Uh, and, and Sorry about that little filibuster. That's fine. <laughs> whenever you get the opportunity to interview a black guy and a Muslim guy, you've got to play Who's Got It Worst? Oh! <laughs> Trayvon, you're up first. Minority um, Suffering Contest. Let's it's go. It's a Minority Suffering Contest. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that's a, ri a, a ridiculous premise <laughs> and a sad idea, <laughs> but there is, th th there's so much that there you can commiserate about, yeah, and mean, we're kind of doing that now. But I think... I think we have it, we just have it bad. There are different versions of bad for right. both of us. For, for Muslims in America, I, I have Muslim friends who I, I just absolutely adore. We have, we're both friends with Osama Naj, who's like one of the greatest human beings you'll ever meet Great in your life. Guy. Yeah, Great guy. And uh, to, to see the president of my country putting their lives in danger with his rhetoric with his behavior, it's it's so it's, it's it makes your blood boil, yeah. and to to look at how he's affected Black lives, you look at someone like Jeff Sessions being in charge of mm -hmm. the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. So, in one sense, you have people right now more focused on Muslims because the president's focused on Muslims, but. They've not forgot about us. They know <laughs> that train's not late. Yeah, they know <laughs> what you. We talked about this earlier. Like last week, all those cops being let off the hook for murder is an indication that oh, the black train is still moving. Sure. And so we just have it bad in waves that we would like to get to a place where that's just not the case where you just don't have to feel like you are both mutually suffering and having to decide like you have to do a trauma off yeah we don't where you have to decide like okay like yeah you both are suffering but right now like the president's actively attacking the muslims let's focus on the muslims right. let's figure out how to help our muslim friends and combat this craziness well we can talk about the black experience and and, and we we've, we've learned at least some of it growing up in america hopefully in school a little bit but you know most people don't know the muslim experience but i mean it seems like um you talk to a lot of uh uh, Muslim commentators and speakers or just Americans who can articulate their story and I, I've heard you talk about this watch there was before and after 9-11 yeah. and, and, and Hassan Minhaj talks about this in his amazing new stand-up special on Netflix Homecoming King uh, yes yeah, so good everybody's got to watch it tell us your story yeah so blacks are Muslims 30% of Muslims in America are African American and that's very important because people see Islam and Muslims as something foreign but we've been here for 400 years and for the rest of us who are immigrants who came here after 1965, most of us, when the visas opened up, actually, to bring in the brains and the talent, which is how my parents got here, uh, now we have 25% South Asian, 20% Arab American. We have white Muslims also. And 9-11 was a fork in the timeline. For us, it's before 9-11 and post 9-11. And aspirational whiteness for us made us realize that that's a dream and a myth. And, oh, my God, we will never be white. We're much like the blacks. And in a strange way, 9-11 reminded us, oh, my God, we thought by living in the suburbs, we thought by getting the blue-white-collar job, we thought by driving the Lexus, they will accept us. No, we're like the blacks. Right. And in a strange way, it was humbling for that older generation that aspired for that whiteness and that inclusion and integration. But for them, it broke their hearts, right? Like there was an uncle who <coughs> talked to me. He said, listen, man. I've been in this country 40 years. I've paid my taxes. I've made the American dream. My kids are engineers and doctors. I've done everything right. I turn on the TV after 9-11. They only see me 
as a terrorist or a cab driver. I used to mock people like you for abandoning the holy trinity of immigrant professions, doctor, engineer, dubious <laughs> businessman who someone makes a lot of money, uh, and becoming a writer, but God bless you, keep writing, because we need people like you to change the narrative. And the difference with me is the following. The worst thing I was called growing up was Gandhi, which is a compliment. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, thank you for comparing me to a, a bald, uh, near-naked pacifist who helped overthrow 300 years of British imperialism and ushered in three nation states. Aside from the Kaffir stuff. Yeah, and the yeah. Kaffir stuff and yeah. all that stuff. And <laughs> it's also <laughs> weird that you were generally not wearing a lot of clothes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, but, you explain it. but, you know, this is the, this, and we talked about this. After 9-11, if you're Muslim-y, right. and this is, this is key, it's yeah. not just Muslims. Sikhs, yeah. Arab Christians, mm-hmm. right. Hindus, Mexicans, white guys with a tan. If you're Muslim-y, you're seen as a suspect. You're a threat. You're indicted, convicted, and sentenced by a nameless judge, jury, and executioner for the criminal actions of a few committed in countries you've never visited, and you have to perpetually apologize and prove your moderation. Well, you're also not seen, correct me if I'm wrong, I'll white explain, but you're also not seen as an American, right? You're not a a, uh, traditional-looking American, Waj. Trayvon, you're not a traditionally-looking American. I yes. mean, you're, you're not American. You're not the American story. I mean, and I want to take my country back I mean, and make on, it great it dep- again. It depends on how you, how you define traditionally looking because I mean, we were some of the first people uh, here. No, but that's with the, the, uh, but that's, the but Trump, I, that's the Trump thesis right there. You hit it on the he- nail well, on the head. Well, that's the Trump thesis. I mean, don't, don't, don't give him the credit. Why nationalism? No, because, because well, when Obama was president, it, was, it, was make, it wasn't make America great again. It was take back america and it was like we want to go back to that time where you know but you look but, at you look at but there was it? never a time well that's of course not that's what whenever someone whenever i hear someone say we want to go back to when like america was great or even just make america great again it's like what year in american history right. was great for everyone when was it when <laughs> what when was it when it got better for black people it was terrible for women yeah. when it got better for women it was still terrible for for any type of minority it's never been terrible what they mean is make America, make that's white exactly men comfortable exactly again. Make white men comfortable again. Pre-Brown versus Board of Education. They don't. Women and any type of ethnic minority in this country has never had it great. You, there have been waves of good. There has been some ups, mostly downs. And so we're still climbing that mountain. Mm-hmm. Like even the idea of... Uh, the way they portray Muslims as terrorists and they want they, they go out and they say like ISIS is coming to get you and all this shit. And it's like my my terrorist does not look like him. My terrorist is a white guy with a blue uniform and a badge whose salary I pay. Like I'm paying for you to terrorize me in my community when I'm driving and a cop car pulls up behind me. Yes, I genuinely wonder, like, what will happen before this light changes? And I'll never forget when uh, comedian Bruce Bruce said to me uh, right after 9-11, uh, he, he kind of was just giggling. He's like, I'm just watching white people be terrorized for the first time. <laughs> and it really resonated with me. He's right. like, it is the yeah. first time I've ever been terrorized. It is the first time I've ever been scared living in New York and living through 9-11. And he just giggled and laughed. Yeah, you know? every, and that's it's our like, every day. So, yeah. so you're, you're just one of the few articulate, talented, funny black men. You're the only moderate only. Muslim. Only. Um, the me and real, Hassan. But, <laughs> right. and so both of you, and, and so both of you <laughs> have to be perfect all the time. Yeah. A you game every day. A but game the, every but day. That's I mean, the same pressure that, as a side, a, a sidebar, we don't have to go down this road, but that's the same pressure now put on the media. You have to be perfect oh, a good, all the yeah, time. Yeah, let me try to get to that. For, or but, or but isn't you the throw problem, everything out. But isn't, really, isn't the problem my people? 
isn't, isn't that we're just so ignorant that we can't, even with our own uh, uh, imaginations, even with our own predominantly white communities, we just can't imagine mm. that there are so many, that, every, that the image, that the representation, that negative representation we see is, is dominant. Like, you're the only moderate Muslim, and only because I've gotten to know you. And why don't more people speak out? And why don't there more Muslims speak <laughs> out about terrorism? It's like, just Google Muslims speaking out about terrorism, <laughs> and you see it's endless. But just think about this. If those images were true, if the white people out there who are terrified of black people and Muslims, if the numbers reflected their fear, if there was that many terrorists and, like, angry, right, right. crazy... The world would be in chaos, and they see the world um, in chaos. America, but but, but, would, like, no, but, but it's a self-fulfilling. <laughs> Aspen would be burning. Chaos. <laughs> right. No, but hold on. That, that's exa- <laughs> that actually is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, yeah. after 9/11, we attacked Iraq. Yeah, they were yeah. like, "What the fuck? What are you doing?" Yeah. We, we to, we, we're still we, attacking Iraq. Uh, uh, fair enough. Civilians so, dying so, in Mosul. No, the, the, the point I'm trying to make yeah. is: isn't, no, it, yeah, isn't, isn't the burden on white people? Like, I, I had to do uh, Michelle Norris's uh, race car project, and you know, six words, and I wrote: "White people need to learn history." Yeah. Don't you, we need you, to? You understand? want me to drop some truth here? Or look, I'll, sorry, we're out of time. Out. White, <laughs> white supremacy is a hell of a drug, and if you want to be really blunt, people of color and minorities are waiting for white people to become less crazy in America. Because what do you mean white supremacy is a hell of a drug? Because uh, <laughs> it deludes you uh, into thinking that the world exists, exists in a way that it never has. It deludes you into thinking that uh, a privilege that you've had is apparently All right, let me jump out of that. We're in Colorado, uh, but uh, marijuana has been legalized here in Carol- that That's a drug, right? Natural. Yeah. Uh, and, and white supremacy seems to have been legalized. It's, it's like, I, I, do you think that there is more instances uh, of overt racism as a result of the president? Or has nothing changed? We're just noticing it more. I, I mean, I can't statistically quantify it. But right, fair enough. I would, I would say... People just seem if to I had to guess, SPLC has quantified it. Yes. If I had to guess, I would say yes. I mean, they probably look at like online interaction and that kind of shit and what people report. But I think the biggest change, the only way to get to where you're talking about, is for white people like you and the people who come to Aspen Ideas Festival to have these conversations with yes. other white people. Yes. The white people who you know and your families and your friends in those those corners of Facebook Do that you, know you don't go into anymore. you know how hard that is? That limits my friendships. It's very hard, but it's the only way because it's the same pressure they put on us. Yeah. Why, aren't, why aren't you telling other why, Muslims yeah. to stop right, being, right. To, like, why aren't, you poli- why aren't you telling other black people to pull their pants up and yep. just, to stop That's running good. from the cops with guns? Like, you should tell your people to stop being Why aren't you way. fighting ISIS right, from yeah. Aspen? Why aren't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wait, ISIS from Aspen? No, no, no. You, what you're saying is white people need to confront other white people. The standard the, you walk past is the standard you accept. If someone's going to be blatantly ignorant and bigoted and, and racist. Bro, uh, they don't want to hear it from me. We don't want double standards. Right, right, right. Listen, tra- people of color. I speak on behalf of all people of color as an unofficial ambassador. When were you elected? Uh, by myself. <laughs> your second by, by the Rust Belt. 70,000 <laughs> votes. <laughs> well, we don't want double standards. We don't want special standards. We want equal standards. Right. Let me repeat. We just want equal standards. And the studies show with this election that for many white Americans who voted for Trump, it was a zero-sum game. They are taking it away from me. This is no longer the America I know. This is not my father's America. They 
the Mexicans, the blacks, the Muslims are intruding and making me feel less secure. So me and Trayvon, we come here. Let's use Aspen, for example. Holy crap, we have a seat at the table. Right. Trump's America, you took my seat at the table. Yeah, uh, I was supposed to be sitting there. I was supposed to be there. I could have been in Aspen. And you took my seat. And even yesterday, what you said, what white people should do, after my friend Abdul Antepoli gave a brilliant, nuanced conversation with Jeffrey Goldberg about Muslims and Jews, just it was on point. First question, I, did, I was sitting with them, they're both my friends, we did a bet. I said, the first question you're going to get asked from the audience is the following. Where are the moderate Muslims and how come they're not condemning terrorism? Jeffrey said, no, bro, it's not going to happen. I said, I bet you. First question, how come the moderate Muslims aren't condemning terrorism? And Jeffrey took out his wallet and said, crap, you guys were right, and gave a fake How bill. many times have you heard that? Every day. And the question then comes to me, it goes, we've done everything for the past 16 years. What have you done? What step have you made? Can you take out your smartphone and at least Google? Why won't you stop creating Muslims who hate you by killing them, bombing With their the countries, <laughs> by going to their countries and destroying their homes and blowing up their weddings? Like, like you were saying, like, self-fulfilling prophecy. You are creating the very people who you are saying exist, who they're telling you don't exist or wouldn't and if you didn't create How does people. it make you and you feel when you have to answer for everybody who looks like you? You have to be the walking Muslim Wikipedia. On the drop of a dime since 9-11, I have to be a walking expert on Iran, Islam, Quran, Sharia, Hakim Olajuwon, <laughs> Fatwas, Hamas, Hamas, uh, and uh, also cold falafel. And honestly, listen, man, I'll be serious with you. It's exhausting. It and is. it's not lost on me. Like, I'm telling you again, at Aspen, it is not lost on me, this privilege. I'm, every day I'm grateful that I'm here, but I realize I'm the unofficial walking ambassador of 1.6 billion people. And it's if, I F, up, if I F up, if I F up, that is going to color their yeah. representation, yeah. their perception of all my people. And so it's exhausting, but look, I can be either Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck. I can enjoy it and kill it, or I can kill myself with depression and anger. And uh, some of us have to do it because last thing I'll say is today the Muslim ban dropped. It's being enforced at 8 p.m. And for many Americans, they think this is needed, even though it's utterly ineffective, counterproductive, unconstitutional, and dripping with hate and stupidity. Uh, but I have to explain to people why it's ineffective. And I have to do it in a way which is moderate and funny and articulate and charming, but also drops Not threatening. Truths. Not so threatening. Two things. Lower your voice, by you the way. <laughs> Take One. it down a notch, please. You, you basically said the Maya Angelou quote that she said about black people, which is every time a black person walks into the room, you carry with you 10,000 black yep. people. Yep. And you represent those people because mm -hmm. how people perceive you will reflect on 10,000 black people. And so, and to the, the, the point about the Muslim ban being so ineffective and ridiculous, no one really picks up on this notion because like we've gotten so far past like just the craziness of the ban. But the original ban was supposed to be 90 days of shutting the whole thing down to figure out what was going on. And it never passed. Uh, it was never implemented. We've, we've gone well past 90 days and nothing's happened. Because it's all a farce. Because it's all a fucking farce. Yeah. 90 days, yeah. more than 90 days passed, even if the ban was in effect, 
nonsense. Nothing happened. Even without an effect, in the next 90 days from January 27th, nothing's hey, happened. I, I, well, let's, let's take the DeLorean 40 years. In the last 40 years, not a single foreign national from those six Muslim-majority countries has killed an American in active terrorism. It's insane. Since 9-11, 740,000 refugees have been resettled in this country. Not a single American has been killed by a refugee in active terrorism. But Only three terror plots, two of them which were taking place in their foreign countries, and those people got removed. But ironically, no, but the, the, the Muslim travel ban, I mean, what it does, I mean, there just can be no doubt about this, is it, it is exactly what the extremists want. Yeah. It plays right in them. It's, it's not keeping us safe. ISIS it's, is applauding. Right. Literally. ISIS says the following. The West is at war with Islam. Eliminate the gray zone. Donald Trump says the following. I think Islam hates us. And this is a very important point that people don't know. What is ISIS's long-term goal? And people need to know this. They want self-inflicted inflicted American wounds. And they have said that Donald Trump is America's yeah. biggest self-inflicted wound. Why? Well, they want to bleed us with a thousand cuts. And you know what they, how they really want to bleed us? They think the veneer of religious freedom, equality is exactly that. They think America actually is about to tear itself apart with religion and race. And they see Donald Trump and say... Thank Clap. You. Thank so, you. So let's try to make this uh, positive as we wrap up here and talk about solutions. And I mean, like, I, I, I think that, again, this doesn't get put on people of color and minorities. It should be white people that are offering the solutions. It's us who need to change, not you. I mean, it's so evident and so obvious, and I don't feel noble saying that. It's humiliating. But what, what, what are the solutions? I mean, that's what Aspen Ideas is about. What, what can be done? Is it, is it, is it leadership? Is it, is it laws? Is it saving democracy is it running for office what it, what do we do to turn this around do, it, do you I, have to go around the country to every white neighborhood <laughs> and introduce yourself and be like hey i'm a friendly guy i mean what do we have to do i think it's a combination of those things i think one you need to have the conversations with in the community white people talking to other white people about why this narrative they've created is is false and you need leadership you need elected officials who are out there standing up to these fucking people who aren't just sitting there trying to get a bill passed so they're gonna they're gonna be quiet on the thing so that they can get some money for some like well, how can they stand up to them if they for, if they're gonna lose re-election by standing up it's it's just like the the the, the politicians in australia who put forth the gun ban, who knew for a fact if it passed, they would lose their seats. Right. But they didn't care mm -hmm. because they believed politicians should do work for the people. And if I'm only there for two years and all I got done was a mass shooting happened and I got gun control and now it's never happened since, that's my legacy. Like you shouldn't be going to Congress and to the Senate to, to be there for 50 years. You should be going there to work for people mm -hmm. and when you've done something or when the work or whenever your mission is complete or whatever you wanted to do is done do it you don't it's, it shouldn't be about money how do we do it? perpetual re-election okay so that's politics how do we do it how do we do it within media Watch. multicultural coalition of the willing we have to carry each other's waters if you're a white a white guy stand for black lives matter if you're a black person stand for lgbt if you're mm -hmm. lgbt stand for muslims if you're muslims Absolutely. stand for the rust belt when it comes to media media and cultural production and narratives is key 89% of publishers and editors are white. The overwhelming majority of people in Hollywood, Trayvon, speak to this, are white. They're not evil. They just don't know any better. You need representation. You put stories out there like Hassan Minaj, White House Correspondents' Dinner, sitting there roasting the president as yeah. a son of immigrants. Khizr Khan taking on his constitution, beating people up. And you realize, oh my God, America includes those people who are brown skin and black skin, multicultural, immigrants, those who are adopted gay, straight, we're all in this together and we have real enemies both abroad and 
domestically or trying to tear us apart through race and religion. If we want to live together and succeed together, the American dream, the American tent, and what it, meet, what it means to be American has to expand like this Aspen tent and include all of us. So what do you think of the, the, the solution that I've tried to live by is, you know, so often we've ta I've talked about these ideas uh, and, and tried to be, you know, a progressive guy and tried to advocate for people of color and so on. A and great and, ally, and, too. And, and Give people, it up to Pete. And yeah. well, people will call in, uh, you know, the radio show and, and they'll say, you know, what, so much white guilt. And I say, okay, let me, let me try to unpack that. Do I, do I feel guilty about my whiteness? I say, I don't. You should because, because Because I didn't choose this vessel. Yeah. But if I don't advocate for people of color and for women, for LGBT, if I don't open doors for them, specifically opportunities for work, that's what I can do. So what, that's what I try to do. I try to open opportunities for internships and for jobs for people of color and for, and for women. And, and that's, but see... I don't want your, your congratulations. I don't want your, your thanks or your accolades. That's just the way it should be. That's the way that you be the change that you want to see, and that's the way that you change the paradigm. The problem is not going to be solved in my lifetime. But for my two daughters, it's about paying it forward. It's about somebody else opening that door mm -hmm. and advocating. So it's not about feeling guilty. The guilt comes if you don't actually do anything. Right. But the acknowledgement and appreciation should be validated, and I think it's important because we're all in this together. And I agree with you that one of the major problems on the left is they're hitting white people for simply being white and straight people for being straight, turning people off, which is then recruitment strategy for the alt-right. Don't feel mm. guilty for the sin of being white. There's no sin. Don't be guilty for the sin of being a straight male. But if you can, acknowledge the privilege. And if you can, and if you want to be a good citizen, use like the Pete, privilege. use the privilege. And then once we make it as we've made it, well, Trayvon's made it. I'm on, like, probation right now in Aspen. <laughs> this is the second year. This is my first. Uh, I apparently have to go sacrifice a minority at an altar. But <laughs> my job is to open the doors. And literally, I'm, already, I'm thinking about that. Next year, i got to bring in five more people of color. Open it up for the person who's marginalized. My kids, once they are killing it at the buffet table, I'm going to teach them that once you make it, turn around, extend your hand, and grab that person who's being bullied bring them to the table, move us all forward. I think this was a fascinating conversation. I think we solved all the problems. It's done. done. We did it. Pete, Trayvon, and Watch for president. Guys, thanks for joining me. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, man. That was great. Uh, hey, just real quick, let's have everybody uh, follow these guys on, twi on Twitter. At Trayvon yes. and at Wajahat Ali. Well, well done. Three syllables. And I am at Dane Cook. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> thanks, brother. That was Podcast Takeover host Pete Dominic speaking with writer Wajahat Ali and comedian Trayvon Free. I'm Trisha Johnson, and you're listening to our Podcast Takeover series. Speakers from the Aspen Ideas Festival are interviewing other festival presenters all week. Catch Michelle Norris, Susan Orlean, Mitch Landrew, Joshua Johnson, and Simon Sinek. Those episodes will drop in the coming days. Takeover host Pete Dominic also caught up with Mark Tursik for our show. He's the president and CEO of the Nature Conservancy. Here's their conversation. Welcome to Aspen Ideas to Go. My name is Pete Dominic, and I'm very excited to have been invited to, to, to host an, uh, another one of these podcasts. And 
even more excited that I get to sit down with Mark Tursek, who has joined me in my SiriusXM show before, but never in person. I'm really excited to meet him. He's the president and CEO of the Nature Conservancy. He's the author of a great book, Nature's Fortune, How Business and Society Thrive by Investing in Nature. And he's got a, a pretty cool life story. He was a finance guy who uh, was doing well and, uh, and, and decided to change tracks, change careers, and uh, go into the work he's now doing at the Nature Conservancy. Mark, uh, I'm glad you're joining me. Thank Good you. Good to be here, Pete. Thank you. Uh, for people who don't know, what is the Nature Conservancy? What do you guys do? So the Nature Conservancy is one of the uh, very big global environmental and conservation nonprofits. Um, we operate in every state in the U.S. and in some 70 countries outside the U.S. We're about 65 years old. I would say we're famous for getting things done, being inclusive. We're nonpartisan. We try to bring people together, pragmatic. Um, we, we're not afraid of doing deals. So um, I used to be an investment banker. In some respects, we're an investment banker or merchant banker for nature. Um, that's who we are. What uh, kind of, exactly what do you do, though? I mean, what are these deals? What is, what is the mandate for the Conservancy? Well, um, our mission is to save the lands and waters that life depends on. So we picked all those words carefully. By lands and waters, we, of course, mean nature in all of its great respects. And life, we mean plants and animals, of course. We care about biodiversity, but we care about people, too. So we want to protect nature at scale for nature's sake and for people's sake, too. And we do that in five big areas. We do land deals. That's how we started. We do marine ocean work. We do fresh water work. A newer initiative is in cities, which is really going well. And finally, climate change. And then, so those are the areas of focus all around the world. And then we kind of uh, say we do three big things. First, we protect nature. So that's how we grew up. We used to buy land to protect it. It's a great uh, way to do things. Of course, though, we have to scale it. We've got to move the needle. So now we try to do that in really big ways. Uh, you can only do so much with philanthropy. We love our philanthropic supporters. That's sure. where it starts. But now we're trying to raise impact capital to lever that money up um, to protect nature at scale. One example. I'll give you an example for Please. each. Uh, we recently bought um, $150 million of land in the states of Montana and Washington. Precious land. When Lewis and Clark was uh, in the area, uh, all the species that were there then are still there. We were the only conservation buyer. If we hadn't stepped up and bought it, um, it would have been developed. And the purchase price was $150 million, which was cool. What was cool about this deal is 95% of the money came from so-called impact investors, very low-cost capital. 5% was from donors. You can think of that as our equity. So we did a leverage buyout for nature. So a really cool way to stretch our, our donor money further and do big things. So that's protecting nature. That's kind of the the old-fashioned way that TNC worked, and we still do it. See, I thought these finance guys are all the villains, but look what you've done with your, with, with, with your career. Uh, what, what is the challenge in this work, though? Because how do you protect all the biodiversity on the planet with a planet that's overpopulated, with 7 billion well, people? I mean, aren't we the problem? Well, so there are lots of challenges. It's a complicated field. But the problem with our protect strategy is it's capital intensive. Yeah. And the world is a big place. So we begin to run out of capital. So then we say, well, instead of using our, our financial capital, now let's use our intellectual capital. Let's persuade businesses and governments to interact with nature differently and in that fashion try to scale things up. So we call this our transform strategy. That's strategy, strategy number two. 
And here we work with government and business to show there's a better way. So one great example, I write about this in my book, are our water funds. So we've persuaded, um, started in Ecuador, Quito. That was the first one. The city was growing fast. There was concern. Where will we get all the clean water we need for our growing sure. population? The city was about to build plant and equipment to clean water for their citizens. Instead, we persuaded the city to invest in nature, protect the forest upstream. That was a lower cost way to get the water they need. Plus, you get all these environmental benefits for free. The, the city saved money. It helped communities upstream. And, it, 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 and it, uh, it got all these environmental benefits. We now have 60 of those water funds around the world that TNC's That's done. Awesome. But more importantly, even we run out of capability at some point, although we're big. So we're trying to get governments and businesses to do this all around the world. So that's a strategy that we think can really scale, and it's win-win. It makes business sense, environmental sense, people sense. So we look for those kinds of strategies. So the, the, historically, your organization, like you said, has been around for a long time, uh, has been about protecting and, and conserving. Uh, now the, the challenge is climate change for right. every environmentalist, for every organization dealing with uh, these issues. And that has unfortunately become a very divisive issue. Most recently, the United States of America pulling out of, uh, of the climate accords, which was a devastating move in my opinion. But why, when did you guys start working on this issue of climate change? It's, when did it become such a challenge? It's really an interesting uh thing that's happened, Pete. So we're a science-based organization. We're, we're proud of that. And so, and I'm now CEO, I'm at TNC, and it's true, although we've done some things in climate all along, we've always been a great champion of protecting forests to sequester carbon. But on climate policy, and especially in the U.S., we used to be a little bit shy because it's a divisive political issue, and we want to be an inclusive, nonpartisan organization. But we flipped that around, and I'm really proud of all the TNC constituents for letting us do this. So we said, precisely because we are nonpartisan, and in the U.S. we're in every state, so red states and blue states, let's use that clout to be a force for smart climate policy. And in fairness to some of my constituents, this is a tough issue. So we have a chapter in Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, Mississippi. Climate's a tough issue in those states. But what we've persuaded the organization to do is let's go forward and, and build support for smart climate policy state by state in an inclusive way. We've been doing this for about two years now. And while there was concern and caution at the beginning, that's mostly gone. And we're having some great wins. Uh, so you can do this. It's not true that the country is hopelessly divided on these issues. But you do have to reach out to people who don't agree with you, um, find common ground, listen to one another, devise strategies that, that won't be scorched the earth, but find win-win. So what have we done? Um, in some states, you know, it, it's relatively easy. So like in the states of Oregon and Washington, we're working on carbon pricing. But in Louisiana, it's a little bit of a tougher issue. So there we're working with farmers. They have, they have marginally productive farmland. So instead, we're reforesting that land and we're selling carbon credits. The, the new trees will sequester carbon. We're selling those credits to Disney, one of our business partners who needs offsets. So it's win-win-win. It's good for climate. It's good for the farmers. It's good for Disney. And it shows in Louisiana you can, you can attack a climate issue in a constructive way. In Florida... Which we, is hard because Louisiana's an oil state. Yeah, it's hard. That, yeah. But it's not impossible. In Florida, which is, a, I guess it's a purple state, the politics go both ways, yeah. 
Florida's crazy. Um, they have now uh, what they call sunny day flooding. So sea level rise is resulting in salt water flowing into the sewers, up into the city, doing a lot of damage. So climate's on people's mind. What to do about it? It's also the sunshine state. But the policies were made it very hard for there to be rooftop solar. So we've fought for the legislative authority to make solar uh, rooftops more viable. And there we were able to get, you know, kind of Tea Party people on our side. Yeah, yeah, I've seen maybe, that. Maybe their motive wasn't climate, but it frustrated them that the government was in their way. Sure. So different strategies in different places. You can bring people together on these things. And I think post the Trump Paris decision, it's gotten everybody's attention. It's not a back of the newspaper storyline anymore. And, you know, and climate is changing. People aren't stupid. They see strange weather patterns. They see sunny day flooding in Florida. And then we're able to show there is a way to make progress that makes sense. Yes, we're discouraged by the Trump decision to repair us, but it's not all bad news. It, it puts us in a position to, to mobilize more constituents to do more. When I see the, the withdrawal of the Paris Agreement, um, it, it's so devastating because you think if the United States federal government isn't involved, it isn't creating laws and, and, and regulations, much less a cap and trade scheme of some sort, uh, then why should any other country? If we're not, if we're the world's third or second leading polluter, why should any other country do it? And that's that's been an argument. But then you see people like uh, uh, former mayor of New York, um, Bloomberg, investing millions of his own dollars, and then you see all of these other mayors doing things and business-minded people doing things, and and it, you start to have have hope that maybe we can do it without the federal government because these innovations are possible and many of these are market solutions anyway. So can we do it without the federal government? There's, there's, there's some encouraging news and there's some discouraging news. First, a word about Paris and the U.S.'s role. The Paris Accord is only a first step and a, a big part of the Paris Accord is that the governments would, the, especially the big carbon governments, would keep coming back to the table and ratcheting up their commitment. And as an American citizen, I was really proud of President Obama and Secretary Kerry, their leadership there. It was important. So it's worrisome now to think, well, where will the U.S. be in, in, as the countries keep coming back together? Will China step up? Will Europe step up? Let's hope so. But, but I think we do need to be concerned about U.S. stepping out of the scene. But why be encouraged? Well, take China, for example. I mean, China, I think, is so badly misunderstood. So in the Paris Accord, the China, uh, Chinese government promised to, be carb to freeze emissions in China by 2030. And you could argue, I think, that that was more or less a business-as-usual tra trajectory. However, China has horrific air pollution these days yeah. now. I was there in December, and schools were closed for the week. Air pollution was so bad. This is bad in a country like China. So motivated by addressing air pollution, China, in its newest five-year plan, has said they'll, they'll, be, they'll, they'll cap their emissions by 2020, 10 years ahead of what the Paris Accord has called for. And China generally does what they say they will do in their five-year plan. India is another country that uses five-year plans, and they've already ratcheted up their commitment, again, motivated by air pollution. So there's some analysis that says that if the U.S., whatever we lose from the U.S. right now, China and India will more than offset. Let's hope so. And then you mentioned all these subnational initiatives that are underway. Yeah. Mayors, Mayors governors, states, businesses. Nonprofits. And so what environmentalists will have to do is really be smart to, to help those entities do a bunch of things that will add up to being like what the U.S. Uh, should have done in the first place as, as a federal uh, institution. All of these challenges were here before our most recent election. With the Trump administration coming in and him appointing a guy like Scott Pruitt at, at EPA and having Republicans 
uh, like Lamar Alexander and James Inhofe leading science committees in the House and Senate, it becomes that much more challenging because they're hostile to the science and they're hostile to environmentalists to some extent, I think it's fair to say. So my question to Mark Tursik is, if you could sit down with the President Trump or Scott Pruitt or any of these guys for a couple minutes, what would you tell them that could change their mind? The big thing I'd urge them to try a little bit better to understand is that it is not true that environmental protection is at the expense of the economy. This is indeed what my book was about. My book argued that you can think of nature as natural capital or green infrastructure. Why? Because nature provides us a stable climate, protection from storms, the, the food we eat, the water we drink, uh, the topsoil in which we grow our food, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, and so it's wrong to think of um, programs to protect nature as spending. Rather, those are prudent investments that yield huge returns. And that's what business people all around the world now understand. And I think the Obama administration understood it. Many state governments understood it. I don't think we're quite there with the White House right now. But there's a little bit of reason to hope. As you know, they're focused on infrastructure, and they have invited the Nature Conservancy in to talk about green infrastructure in this way. So um, what might they do? Imagine, like, in New York City after um, Sandy, immediately the mayor, at the time it was Mayor Bloomberg, now de Blasio's on this, and Governor Cuomo, they said, how will we protect against future Sandys? Good question, right? Any responsible government would ask that. So they put together this big task force. I was on it with one, only one other environmentalist. It was mostly engineers. Mm. And indeed, there will be a lot of built infrastructure needed. But now the governor and the mayor understand there's a huge role for green infrastructure at lower cost. Coastal ecosystems, dunes, mangroves, marshes can provide really robust protection at very low costs. We have, these, we, have, we have enormous opportunities like this, and that's what we've got to get the president and his well, team to better understand. Mark, thanks for sitting down with us uh, for the podcast here at Aspen Ideas. Uh, I'm really glad that you continue to lead on these issues. Uh, having you in the room, I think, is really important to convince a lot of these deal makers that the future is one that we need uh, these vital solutions for the environment and that you can actually make money off of it, too. Thank you, Pete, and uh, thanks for your interest in these important topics. Always. You've been listening to our podcast takeover series at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, or find us on SiriusXM's Insight Channel. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and me. Audio engineering by Corby Anderson and SiriusXM. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.